Hello everyone, Jennifer Doliak here. As you may have heard, I have a new job. I recently joined Arnold Ventures as their Executive Vice President of Criminal Justice, overseeing their research and policy work with the goal of making criminal justice policy more evidence-based. Rest assured, the podcast will continue, but we're taking a break while I get settled in. So this week, we're rebroadcasting one of our favorite interviews, first posted in January of 2020. In this episode, I talk with JJ Prescott about sex offender registries. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is J.J. Prescott. J.J. is an economist and law professor at the University of Michigan. J.J., welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk today about your research on sex offender registration and notification laws. But first, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure. So I have a PhD in economics from MIT and a law degree from Harvard. And um, I think when I was in law school, I I thought I might be really interested in becoming a torts professor, which would be a professor who is interested in the causes and policy surrounding accidents. Um, But I wound up clerking uh, for Merrick Garland after law school. uh, And while I was clerking, I spent a lot of time doing sentencing related cases. And uh, and that wound up... uh, leading me to be very interested in in criminal justice and criminal law. Um, with respect to sex offender registries, I it's a little bit of a um, it's a little bit of a story that that goes back to um, an advisor, a mentor of mine who who in in talking about things that uh, people who are eventually going on the market ought to be thinking about, said, you know, just just do something that's exciting and for want of a better phrase, sexy. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, the, the thing about sex offender registries is in the area of criminal law and criminal justice, there isn't a lot that's new under the sun. I mean, we, we have, um, kind of restricted ourselves from certain, using certain kinds of punishments. Uh, and we've been using mostly the same types of punishments for a long time. We've mostly, uh, restricted behavior in the same kind of ways. Uh, but sex offender notification and registration are, are actually pretty innovative and new, and they don't have a very long history. I mean, they, you know, we, there is a, a, an earlier generation of them that happened in the, in the thirties and you can make analogies, but really they started in the late eighties and early nineties. And the, the idea behind them was, Let's let's leverage information. Let's try to use information, um, either information going to law enforcement or information going to the public, as a way to control behavior. And that was, first of all, really innovative in the context of criminal law, and just really interesting to me. So we'll focus for the first part of the show on a paper you wrote with Jonah Rokoff titled "Do Sex Offender Registries and Notification Laws Affect Criminal Behavior." This paper was published in the Journal of Law and Economics way back in 2011, uh, but you followed this topic closely since then, so we'll talk about how this literature is developed a little later on. But why don't you kick things off for us by telling us a little bit more about what sex offender registries are, uh, what do these policies look like, and why do they exist? 
Sure. So, I mean, I, I got a little bit ahead of the game in my um, answer to your last question about um, information. But essentially what um, registration and notification laws are designed to do is, I think, first and foremost, they're, they're, they're targeting recidivism. So um, the, uh, the inspiration behind them, uh, which goes back to some of the earlier, the earliest um, uh, uh, cases or, or, you know, surprising, uh, uh, terrifying, aggravating newspaper articles about recidivist sex offenders and how we might have done something different. So imagine somebody who has committed a sex crime is released from prison. They've served their sentence and, um, and there's some possibility that they will reoffend and commit another sex crime. What can we do other than committing them as if they are, um, uh, mentally ill. What other, what can we do other than that to try to reduce the likelihood of their returning to crime? And one one possibility um, is that we could let people know um, either the police, uh, just the police, who could then monitor uh, released sex offenders. Uh, that that usually goes under the, the name private registration or registration. Uh, and um, and and the the thinking here is that it, you know if you're a sex offender and you know the police know where you are. They can first monitor you, and second, if there is a crime uh, that um, uh, happens near where you are or seems consistent with your behavior in the past, uh, the police will have a leg up in, in potentially identifying uh, the likely um, uh, offender. Uh, so that's registration. And a second uh, strategy, um, which is sometimes called public registration or goes under the, the moniker uh, community notification, involves making uh, the identity and criminal history of a convicted sex offender public. Um, for those of you who are familiar with it, it, you know, the most common way this is done today is through a web registry or an internet registry where you can go on and type in your address and find out who has committed a crime near you. And, th and this was designed really to have um, two effects. Uh, one, again, is to improve the likely uh, quick apprehension of uh, somebody who has reoffended, but also brings in the public to both monitor uh, uh, release sex offenders for signs of bad behavior and also to allow the public to, to engage in precaution taking, uh, precautionary behavior. So if you know that there's somebody who has been convicted of a crime in the past near you, you can um, change the way you behave, um, maybe uh, interact uh, with them differently uh, so that you are less at risk. And that's pretty much what registration and notification are designed to do. And really, you know, it's it's a pretty innovative strategy, one that, you know, we might find a little bit um, of a uh, of a cop out because the the police and law enforcement are essentially putting the burden on people to protect themselves. But of course, there's a natural, I think, psychological tendency to want to know this sort of information. So they've met with great success once they once the innovations happened. We you know they they pretty quickly spread throughout the the U.S. I'm realizing we should probably also clarify what a sex offense is in this context. Is this just really serious offenses like rape, or does it do these registries tend to include more minor offenders too? Great. So there is some uh, variation across um, law, especially in the beginning. They mostly focused on very serious crimes. But over time, what counts as a sex offense has expanded. So usually it, a sex offense would include uh, both activity that is sexual in nature. Um, uh, so it might include, for example, a child pornography crime, which um, isn't maybe like a rape, but um, both seem to be related to sex. Or it can involve um, body parts. 
So, for example, even uh, indecent exposure or urinating in public, uh, these are often also considered uh, sex offenses for purposes of um, uh, uh, um, winding up causing you to be included on one of these um, registries. So th there are um, there are a few other crimes that are maybe less sexual in nature that wind up being included here. For example, like kidnapping, the kidnapping of a child. Uh, kidnapping of a child in some places puts you on the sex offender registry, even if the kidnapping didn't you know, result in any kind of, uh, of sexual activity whatsoever. Um, uh, so there are a few, a few kind of transitional crimes that, that can generate inclusion, but, but most of them fall into those two categories. And how high are recidivism rates for convicted sex offenders? Is this a major policy problem? Well, I think probably recidivism in general is a, uh, a major problem. I think we've spent a lot of time policy-wise um, trying to figure out how, you know, once somebody has committed a crime, how we can reintegrate them into society, make them a contributing member of of uh, society. So in general, it's a problem. With respect to sex offenders, it's tough to know. So there is a a belief out there, a mistaken belief that um, uh, that sex offenders, once they uh, commit a crime, they're sort of revealed as uh, as if they are um, impulsive and, and uh, incorrigible and will continue to offend. In fact, uh, sex offenders recidivate um, at considerably lower rates than most other crimes. So somebody who's a uh, convicted property uh, offender, so somebody who's committed theft or something like that, is much more likely to recidivate uh, than uh, somebody who has uh, committed a sex crime. Um, uh, and and so uh, and there is there is actually a fair amount because there have been these um, laws targeting sex offenders in particular. Uh, we've we've had a Supreme Court, for example, that has described recidivism, rate, uh, recidivism rates among sex offenders as frightening and high, um, citing to something that suggested as you know as uh, rates as high as seventy or eighty percent. That that claim has now been debunked. Rates are actually much lower. You know, somewhere between five and um, uh, and and considerably you know twenty or thirty percent, depending on the way you count recidivism, uh, how many years you uh, how many years you measure recidivism over. Um, that's not, it's not trivial though. The recidivism rate is not trivial. And it's, in my view, I mean, there, there have been a, a lot of people who've talked about whether or not we ought to, uh, to try to innovate in this area to do something to reduce recidivism. Um, I think the answer is yes, so long as we actually think uh, that what we're doing is improving um, on uh, matters. And, you know, as I'll describe, some of the work that's come out, a lot of the work has, that's come out has suggested um, that using uh, uh, SORN policies, sex offender registration and notification policies, doesn't really help. So, um, but we'll get to that down the road, I assume. Yeah. So people who haven't thought much about these policies might think that any effects they could have would be very straightforward. They help us catch repeat sex offenders, right? Um, but as you detail in this paper we're going to talk about and elsewhere, there are actually a variety of ways these laws could potentially affect behavior, and not just the behavior of registered sex offenders, but behavior of the police and potential victims and potential first-time offenders as well. So talk us through all of the potential mechanisms we should have in mind for how sex offender registries might affect crime. Yeah, so this is this is complicated because um, there are a bunch of different ways to to cut this. But uh, let me start just with um, 
with something simple and straightforward, private registration, where uh, essentially people are required under these laws to provide uh, identifying information and their address information and uh, and and maybe where they work and how to contact them uh, to the police. So how would we expect this to um, affect the various players? Well, first of all, at least in theory, um, you know the uh, you know once a law is passed and you realize, hey, if I am convicted of a sex offense, I'll have to provide a lot of information to the police and I'll have to do so regularly, uh, that might cause you to rethink whether or not you um, want to commit a sex crime. Uh, this would be a, a form of deterrence. And so that that's one possible mechanism is that we'd have potential first-time offenders deciding not to actually offend when they otherwise um, uh, might. Um, uh, with respect to uh, uh, people who've already been convicted of uh, sex crimes, and a lot of these um, laws were retroactive, so they they wound up applying to people who had been convicted in the past. Um, now, essentially, you're required under the law to provide your information, so you start doing that, and you realize, um, again, the police might be able to, to monitor you, um, and and so you may decide, again, not to commit um, another sex offense. Uh, I refer to this usually as uh, recidivism reduction or people who would otherwise have recidivated might not now. That's, I think, some of the, the, the sort of the, the two obvious ways that this might um, uh, matter. What we'll find, though, is when we, um, we think about recidivism reduction, uh, that these laws, if you've already been convicted of a crime, um, wind up burdening you quite significantly. Less so with private registration, to be sure, but even with private registration, um, you regularly have to uh, deliver information to law enforcement. Um, sometimes you might need permission on whether you can travel or how and when you're able to move. Uh, these also interact with residency restrictions and so on. Um, now let's move to um, community notification, where you provide this information to the public. Uh, again, for first-time potential offenders, um, there's um, a much, I think, you know, this is this is not really based on data, but um, at least uh, at least in thinking about hypothesizing an effect, uh, the prospect of being labeled publicly a sex offender, um, it seems quite salient. People are aware of these lists, and so we, again, might expect there to be quite a, a large deterrent effect um, uh, for people who are not yet on the registry. They might decide, uh, for whatever reason, to um, uh, to engage in a different crime, or maybe a worse outcome here would be to, to engage in a crime that was harder to detect because of um, because of the possibility of winding up on, on a public list. Uh, for those who are already on the list, However, we now have um, uh, a couple of different effects moving in opposite directions, at least uh, theoretically. So we have um, police and, a, and, and victims who are aware of who these people are, at least in theory, or at least some uh, subset of them. And, uh, and so the prospect of committing a crime uh, successfully, meaning like completing the crime and, uh, and not being arrested or convicted for it, goes way down. So um, uh, there might be, uh, again, a recidivism reducing effect because the laws essentially work as they are uh, supposed to. Uh, but, but there's another effect, and this is a really important one and one that policymakers almost always forget, which is, you know, for people who have been convicted of a crime before and go on these lists, they may, um, they may be, um, you know, somebody who's never uh, 
likely to recidivate in the first place under the previous regime. But now they are essentially a, a, a pariah. You know, they are uh, publicly listed, makes it difficult for them to find housing, makes it very difficult for them to find a job, makes it difficult for them to form new relationships. Um, and uh, and it turns out that we know from re other reentry work that all of these things are real are real significant risk factors for returning to crime. So on the one hand, we have um, uh, public notification or community notification uh, leading to a, a higher likelihood of getting caught if you reconvict, at least if you think that these laws work the way they should. On the other hand, um, Everybody who is uh, who is listed on the registry now finds it much harder to reintegrate into society, and um, and so that that would suggest the possibility that these laws could actually be counterproductive, at least for um, people who are listed on uh, the registries. They might might wind up becoming more likely to commit uh, sex crimes than they would have in a world where there was just private registration or nothing at all. Um, and you also mentioned other types of players here. So of course, in order for notification and uh, registration to work, you, you know, you need to have uh, the public and law enforcement using this information. So um, with private registration and with public notification, we, we have um, uh, law enforcement who, who are aware of of uh, where sex offenders are, can keep a closer eye on them. Presumably they do some of that in some systems where there's uh, uh, more active involvement of police. They do sort of uh, checks. They, you know, they show up and, and find out whether or not anything looks um, unusual at someone's house. Um, when, it, when it comes to, uh, to notification and, and involving uh, the community, letting them know, there are a couple of assumptions that go into um, into the claim that these things make a difference. The first is that people know about and use these registries, these public registries, and that seems to be a, a true assumption. So a lot of people know about them. A fair number of people um, check them. Uh, I remember um, when I first started working on this, I had some undergrads who were collecting some information for me, and uh, more than one of them said that as, you know, in high school, they were directed to, to look up um, on the registry, whether there were any uh, sex offenders nearby. So, so, so that that part of this, the the claim is not a hard one. One 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 area where I haven't done research, but other people have, is to find out how people respond uh, to knowing that there is a sex offender nearby, um, and uh, and um, and it turns out that the evidence here suggests that people don't do very much with it. So they often talk about people who are on registries, but when you ask them what they do to lower their risk, um, there, there isn't, there, there isn't uh, a lot of evidence that they do anything too helpful. Um, and there is some evidence that they use this information um, to, uh, uh, to, you know, to harass or to, to force people out of neighborhoods and so on, all of which goes back to my earlier comments about uh, potentially increasing uh, recidivism rates through um, uh, notification. Um, and I, and I, you know, when it comes to notification, um, we're going to have some neighborhoods that have listed offenders in those neighborhoods. And one thing you might worry might happen is that if you live in a world where in your neighborhood, you know that there are two or three um, convicted sex offenders, those might be the, those, those might be the people you focus your attention on when you're worried about your kids or uh, your family members. And that raises the possibility that, um, 
that listing somebody on a registry might distract from other uh, from other potential risks. So one of the things we know from um, uh, uh, the sex offender um, context is um, that a lot of people believe that sex offenses uh, are are really a stranger danger. So you know somebody will jump out of the bush bushes, or there will be uh, somebody who 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 tries who pulls up in a van and tries to take your child. Well, you know those things uh, they do happen, but it's much likelier that a friend or neighbor or uncle or coach or something of that sort will be the source of the real threat um, to your family. And, um, and one concern is that by giving people a list of, uh, of, of, of potential recidivists that live in their neighborhood, it distracts them from, um, uh, from generally being wary um, of other people, um, you know, presumably people who have never been convicted of a crime and therefore don't appear on the registry. Did that cover most of it? That does it. Yeah, that was great. Um, yeah, so there's a lot that you might want to measure here. Um, so let's talk about the empirical challenges to studying what the effects of the policies are in the real world. So as you and Jonah started thinking about this, what were the primary hurdles you had to overcome as you were thinking about how you would measure what impacts sex offender registries had on criminal behavior from these these various actors you just talked about? Yes, sure. So, uh, I mean, in in um, uh, criminal justice work that is done by economists, a lot of time it's very sort of reduced form. I mean, there's lots of actions I've described, um, many of which we can't uh, measure. Uh, but we started from the uh, premise that you know the first thing we need to do is really come up with a ma- way to to identify. Uh, features of these laws and and then come up with a way to measure um, uh, those laws both in, in in time and strength and um, one of the pretty standard ways of thinking about understanding the effects of of, of uh, law generally policy generally but especially criminal justice is to take advantage of the fact that states enact laws that are in the same category but look different from each other and uh, and cover uh, different populations and um, are uh, put into place at different times. And so from our perspective, there was beginning in you know roughly the late 80s, a uh, movement across the country, starting with a, a few leading states, but then a, essentially an avalanche over time of these laws being passed. Um, they were mostly similar in design. Uh, they also progressed through a similar um, sort of phase. So they began with private registration and moved on to public registration. And um, and so the first uh, task was to get a handle on the differences over time and across states in uh, in, in in terms of how um, uh, in terms of how these laws were both enacted and then put into effect, and um, and and that's a big difference. It's something that um, was important to us because these laws um, were often enacted. At, a, at time A, but didn't really go into effect until sometime uh, later. And if you just spent time looking at statute books, uh, you might be mistaken in terms of when you thought these laws really um, ought to start changing behavior. Okay, so that's one side. That's like let's let's figure out what we're measuring um, on the law side, and then the question is like, what are the outcomes that matter? And um, here we used. Uh, uh, federal data, the NIBRS data, um, uh, National Incident-Based Reporting uh, uh, Program uh, uh, System data, and 
this is the data that winds up feeding up and creating the the, the uniform crime reports uh, data that comes out from the FBI. And we did that um, uh, for a reason. So there have there's been some other work, in, including my uh, collaborator uh, Amanda Agan, that has looked at uh, the effects of sex offender registries and community notification using the UCR data. But one of the nice things about the NIBRS data, even though it didn't cover as many states and didn't start as early as we would have liked, is that it actually included some information on the relationship between the offender and the victim. And that was important to us, both from a, um, a theoretical uh, perspective in terms of, uh, uh, you, you know, how these laws were supposed to work by revealing information to people who were actually in a position to use it, uh, but also because it, it gave us another uh, potential identification strategy that we were going to be able to, to kind of at least um, – assume that certain types of, of relationships between offenders and victims, certain types of offenses would not have been um, affected uh, by uh, registration and notification. So to give you an example there, we might think that a, uh, a crime that occurs between um, parents and children um, was, you know, was unlikely to be affected by um, SORN, at least when it comes, uh, registration notification, at least when it comes to recidivism reduction, because it seems pretty unlikely that um, within the nuclear family, uh, a history of, of, of sex crime would not have already been known to the children in that family or, um, or other members of the family. So, so that, that's, that's how we approach this. Um, and uh, so two big categories. One are the outcome measures, uh, which we used uh, incidents of reported crime. You can move on from there and, and look at other, uh, uh, other measures of, of crime uh, depending on where they are in the process. So an incident of crime uh, that is reported may actually be nothing. Uh, so maybe we should only look at a, an incident that leads to an arrest or an arrest that leads to a prosecution or a prosecution that leads to um, a conviction. We focused uh, first and foremost on uh, reported incidents in part because um, uh, we, you know, we wanted the broadest possible measure and there are lots of reasons why uh, crimes don't uh, progress to uh, uh, future stages that have, have have very little to do with whether or not the crime actually occurred. Um, and then we use some of those other measures uh, to, to check our inferences about that. So before this study, what had we known about the effects of sex offender registries? What other research had existed? Great. So primarily, um, there had been uh, some studies that had looked at small groups of, of offenders uh, and looked to see whether or not if they were um, uh, released before registration notification uh, laws were put in place, did they uh, were, you know, let's, let's come up with a baseline. What was the likelihood that they would recidivate and, and did that change or did that rate change uh, for uh, individuals released after um, uh, after uh, SORN laws went into effect. Um, these were almost ex 
uh, entirely studies that focused on a single state. So, you know, to give you a classic example, we might take one of the early adopters of this kind of information, Minnesota or, or Washington State uh, or New Jersey, and we'd say, hey, let's, let's, let's take a set of uh, sex offenders who were released, um, let's say, five years before uh, SORN happened uh, and, um, and see how likely they were to recidivate. And then let's take a set of offenders who were released um, after uh, 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 SORN uh, went into effect and see how likely they were uh, to recidivate either, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, if you have a set of identified offenders, you have to look at least to, to people who had been arrested. Otherwise, you wouldn't know um, whether or not it was a, an offense that came from a potential recidivist. Um, and so there are some problems with this. Uh, for instance, there are a lot of other things that could be going on in a particular state. Um, there could be other criminal justice policies. Um, and on top of that, uh, you are only looking at the effects on one dimension. So I mentioned before that these laws were designed to reduce recidivism, but they might have uh, important potentially offsetting effects on first-time offenders and um, including, you know, first-time offenders who take advantage of the fact uh, that there's public uh, notification to to fly under the radar, uh, for example, and um, and 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 most of these studies did not look at sort of overall levels of of offenses going on in a state. And presumably, the the goal of SORN was not just to uh, I mean, or at least we would care whether or not um, uh, total numbers of offenses seem to be going down, uh, not just uh, the effects of the crime on uh, of the of the of this kind of uh, law on on recidivism. So earlier studies mostly um, looked like that within a single state, looking at just at recidivist crime, and almost all of them showed no effect. No effect, uh, in part, uh, and and usually the estimates were very close to zero. Sometimes even positive, but there wasn't even a a a, a, a typical um, uh, sign associated with uh, SORN laws. Uh, there was a a study that came out just before ours that showed, in the context of a a very narrow uh, targeted public. Uh, a public registry uh, scenario where um, really the worst of the worst were put onto a public registry. Um, some indication of uh, reduced recidivism, but by and large, uh, there was a, uh, a, a message that came out that these things just don't make a difference, even to recidivism, you know, leaving aside all their other potential effects. They don't seem to work the way they were designed or people have assumed that they were going to work. Okay. So in this paper, you're going to use this gradual rollout of these policies in a difference and differences framework, comparing trends in sex offenses in places where a sex offender registration policy goes into effect with trends in places where those policies change at different times. Um, and so if we think of sex offender registries as a shock to the probability that repeat offenders will get caught or to victims' ability to protect themselves, then we should see crime rates change at the same time that the policy changes. But what you're doing is actually a little bit more complicated than that, standard diff and diff, because you're also interested in differentiating between the effects of private registration laws and notification laws, as well as whether changes are due to changes in recidivism or first-time offending. So tell us a little bit more about your empirical strategy and what exactly you're testing for. 
Sure. So, you know, uh, you, you, you got it right there. So one of the first things we did was recognize, and, and, and I should have made this clear in my earlier answer, um, a, a, the existing work at the time, Joan and I started working on this, really conflated registration and notification. They were treated the same. Um, but as I, you know, as I tried to argue before, they're really quite different. One is really focused on letting the police know where you are so that they can keep an eye on you and potentially um, apprehend you if a crime happens nearby. But other than the police knowing, um, the public would not know. Um, I mean, unless they did some sort of background check. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't, um, uh, necessarily have trouble getting a job or finding housing or reintegrating into society. Um, whereas notification really works by uh, putting the public on notice and making sure that you're um, uh, keeping your uh, your nose clean. And that has, as I mentioned, the possibility of, uh, of uh, it, it has the, the potential consequence of making reentry much more difficult. So we took into account that most states progressed from private registration uh, to public registration and um, sometimes separated by, you know, only a few months, but in other places separated by um, many years. And so we, we took advantage of that um, uh, and we also uh, were interested, as you mentioned, in the deterrent effect on, on potential first-time offenders and the recidivism-reducing effect on, on people who had been convicted of the crime, um, uh, convicted of a sex crime in the past. And the way we tried to tease that out was taking advantage of the retroactivity of these laws and the size of the registry. So let me give you an example of how that would work. So um, some states, uh, mostly, um, you know, uh, mostly, all, all, I mean, we argue essentially randomly um, based on uh, previous uh, views of what their constitution required or what was an appropriate way to proceed um, with designing these laws. And I can talk about, a little bit about the law later if, if you're interested. But some states made these uh, public registries apply and 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 public reg and private registration apply prospectively. In other words, um, only people who were released starting the day after the effective date would go on the registry. If you had been convicted and released prior to the effective date of the law, you would not go on the public registry. So that means on the first day, uh, we had a registry that was effectively size zero. Um, and so if you're thinking about the difference of, uh, deterring first time offenders who don't want to wind up on the registry versus this strategy that, um, tells us, uh, that, um, uh, that people who are on the public registry will, will, uh, will, you know, it, the registry will alert their neighbors and acquaintances and potential victims to, to watch out for them. We know that that um, theory of behavior change isn't operating in those states at that time. And essentially, over time, the registry grows. And so the identifying assumption we make is um, on day one in a state that has a very, very small registry or no registry at all, um, any behavioral change is, is, is the result of deterring uh, potential offenders who, um, who are not yet on the registry and do not want to wind up on the registry. And that, that, that effect uh, begins to shrink relative to um, the recidivism reducing effect um, as the registry grows. 
Uh, and so we kind of we assume the deterrence effect is is uh, fixed over time. And so if the effect changes over time, we um, we argue that that change over time is the result of the registry growing over time and giving uh, us a chance to explore the recidivism reducing possibility of these laws. Okay, so let's talk about the results. What do you find is the effect of private registration laws on sex offending? Great. So remember, there are two dimensions we're interested in. One is deterrence of of um, uh, first-time offenders, or at least of offenders who, who even if they've been convicted of a crime before, were not going to be subject, not eligible for this. And so they might want to not commit another crime so they don't wind up on the registry. For private registration, we find no real deterrence effect whatsoever. And 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 that that's not that surprising, I mean, in part because it is a an administrative burden um, but doesn't come with the, the pariah status uh, or, or registration doesn't doesn't bring the pariah status that uh, that that comes later with a public notification. However, we do find that um, recidivism uh, uh, is reduced among people who um, who who are on uh, private registries. I should be clear that um, we don't actually have in our data. Um, uh, any connection between people who were on the registry and whether or not they committed um, crimes. What instead we find is that the, um, uh, the amount of sex crime goes down uh, as the registry size goes up, and we attribute uh, this to recidivism reduction. So that's private registration. So it doesn't really deter anybody, um, but the monitoring that law enforcement can engage in seems to have a positive effect, meaning that there are fewer sex crimes as the as the registry um, expands. With uh, public notification, we almost find the opposite. So first of all, again, not surprising, I, I don't think, after you think about it a little bit, um, that we find significant deterrence effects. So people who are not on a public registry um, don't want to be on the public registry and and are either committing fewer sex crimes or are committing different kinds of crimes that are less likely to report be reported. In any event, we see reported sex offenses going down. Um, but when it comes to recidivism reduction, we actually see either no effect or actually a subtle increase in uh, sex offenses. So to be clear, the larger and more expansive the registry is, the, the higher is the level of crime, okay? And we explore in the paper various possibilities for this, uh, but from our perspective, we think the, the, the most likely story is uh, that, um, uh, that essentially for people who are, who are potential recidivists, uh, the environment in which they um, can, you know, reintegrate into societies become much more hostile. And so, um, again, I, I described before that there's a basic trade-off, like maybe these laws work to cause victims to be more um, cautious, uh, allow allow the public to monitor more effectively, and so on. There's, there's maybe some effect there. On the other hand, we are dramatically increasing the risk factors for recidivism among those who are on the public registry, and our evidence suggests that the, the latter effect outweighs the former. In other words, um, people become less likely uh, to, um, to stay on the straight and narrow and become more likely to commit crimes as a result of uh, public notification. 
And then I think you also are able to look at the effects of these laws on who was victimized. Am I recalling that correctly? So that's right. What the relationship right. was to the offender? What do you find there? Yeah. So, um, so again, we, you know, it, at least if you believe that notification is supposed to work the way, um, you know, proponents argued it was, um, we wouldn't expect it to make much of a difference um, with respect to family members because they should already know things, um, and 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 strangers, right? People that you don't you don't know and come from other neighborhoods and that that sort of thing. This kind of information wouldn't be very helpful to you either because they're too far afield. Um, in an ideal um, world, what you would do is learn about the people that are acquaintances or maybe somebody you're thinking about going out on a date with or um, somebody who lives in your neighborhood or maybe um, uh, 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 is 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 not quite a friend but um, is somebody that you're sort of in that middle range not a complete stranger that you've never seen before but somebody who's in your environment and um, with with respect to public notification um, the deterrence effect shouldn't shouldn't differ by these relationships because if you get convicted of any crime, it doesn't matter whether it's against a stranger or not, you're going to wind up on the registry. So, uh, and that's what we find. The deterrent effect is, is the same um, in terms of the re re reduced uh, incidence of offenses, uh, uh, you, you know, across, across different uh, types of relationships. Um, with recidivism reduction, we also find that it does not vary um, across um, relationships. And remember, we actually find that recidivism increases. And, um, and this suggests in our view, and this is what we argue in the paper, is that if what is really making a difference here and what really matters is not that um, uh, acquaintances and uh, neighbors learn about somebody's status and are able to protect themselves, but instead that uh, offenders' lives now are just much worse um, they have housing difficulties and employment difficulties and, and uh, uh, isolation uh, uh, isolation and, and loneliness and other psychological uh, problems. We have, have no good reason to think that that would have the effect of increasing uh, their likelihood of, rec of recidivating against any particular group. Um, and, and that's what we see, sort of an equal uh, amount, an equal increase against, um, uh, against all categories. So we, we, we have three categories, so really close um, in the strike zone and then people who are um, uh, far afield, strangers. And we see roughly similar results across. Now, that we don't find with private registration. In private registration, you'll remember that we didn't find any deterrent effect, but we did find um, – uh, some evidence of recidivism reduction. And we argued there that this is actually uh, a situation which there shouldn't be too many issues related to um, uh, recidivism enhancing risk factors because the burdens were much lower and the stuff was supposedly kept confidential. Um, uh, and yet you're going to have police who are better informed and can keep an eye on people, at least in their neighborhoods, where, when they are where police know of them. And that's actually what we find. We find that um, there is a reduction in crimes um, uh, with, with private registration where the, 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 the incidence of crime goes down as the registry increases uh, in size. 
uh, for uh, for uh, close uh, close members, and this could include members of the family. And remember that the police would also be more likely to to investigate those sorts of crimes, right? Um, and and also acquaintances and neighbors. Uh, but we don't find any reduction in crime with respect to strangers, and and that makes sense because the police having this information would probably be unable to um, uh, to to really interfere with uh, or or monitor people when they're away from their neighborhoods or around victims who would constitute strangers. And so we we interpret that as all consistent with our earlier view that registration, private registration, works to reduce recidivism, but uh, public notification, although it, it does, uh, as a threat, serve to deter first-time offenders, it winds up in, in exacerbating uh, recidivism, doesn't work the way uh, we we think it will. Uh, and, and this comes out of the fact that we don't see it operating um, to improve even the relative situation of acquaintances and neighbors versus other um, other potential victims. And just to clarify what all this means for kind of current policy, so am I correct that basically everyone, every state now has a notification law? These private registration laws don't really exist anymore, or, or are they in place? In- Okay. That's right. That's right. So, so we, we, you know, now um, uh, we don't have anything like that. It matters outside of the U.S. because, um, you know, because mm-hmm. all of the social science here has really consistently indicated that this doesn't really work to reduce, reduce recidivism. Um, other countries have not. I mean, there may be one or two now that has gone the way the U.S. has. But last time I looked, Canada and Australia and um, and a number of other countries have private registration systems, but not public registration systems. Um, and so, you know, this evidence would suggest they ought to stop there or at least, yeah. you know, on from there, we know it has a ton of costs, um, both to offenders and their families, but also to law enforcement um, uh, to kind of uh, to kind of uh, keep people um, constantly registered, despite the, the burdens on them of doing this. Um, uh, so it would suggest stopping there. And for uh, for the U.S., where we might be thinking about this, you know, you can you can imagine a world in which you have. A two registry, uh, two registries going on, and and there are certainly states in the U.S. that do this, um, where you have a broad registry. Anybody who's convicted of a, a sex crime, tier one, tier two, tier three, in terms of, I mean, it's kind of a common categorization of people posing a particular risk. Everybody is on the um, the list that law enforcement knows about, but only a subset of those are put on the public registry. And um, if we take into account our work and also uh, the, the 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 paper I mentioned um, before, do and done uh, that um, finds some evidence of recidivism re- reduction when you really target public notification on um, the worst of the worst. Um, so you know they in their situation it's only sort of ten percent of the highest risk. Um, offenders, so it's a pretty narrow sliver. Um, it, it suggests a more targeted approach to public notification. So don't apply this willy-nilly to everybody. Um, instead, there are likely to be some very high-risk individuals who we think um, are highly likely to either impulsively um, commit new crimes or uh, whatever the the drivers of their behavior are are more predictably uh, predictable. Um, you know, uh, 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 reforming uh, public registration systems, notification systems to kind of focus on that group um, might be the way to go. I think there are 
a lot of people in this field who think that um, even that, although it makes sense kind of in the abstract, it's not the best approach that um, focusing on um, recidivism risk factors is the way to go. So instead of um, doing the opposite of what we do in so many other contexts where we work on trying to help people reenter society and reintegrate, we ought to be doing a lot more of that in um, the sex offender um, context, helping people find stable housing, helping them find um, employment, helping them uh, succeed in treatment, that sort of thing um, is, is likely to be, I think, you know, almost all experts would agree, much more effective at reducing recidivism than uh, trying to deputize the public to watch people, because whenever you deputize the, uh, the public to watch people, they inevitably um, uh, decide not to hire them, decide not to rent um, houses to them, decide not to form relationships with them, and, and that has real costs to society. Yeah, it is interesting that like there's this broader movement in the U.S. right now to think about people with criminal records as human beings, right? You deserve our attention and deserve investment. And it does seem like sex offenders have been left out of that movement uh, to a large extent. Uh, but as yeah, you say, it's yeah. a very similar problem. Um, so I do want to make sure we we talk about other work that has, that has happened uh, in this space. Um, I know you've continued to work on this topic. You're co-authoring a book chapter with Amanda Egan that summarizes the literature. So, so let's talk about what else we've learned since you wrote the study you just talked about. Um, as you do in your chapter, I'm going to divide the literature into four broad categories. So we have the effects of sex offender registries on the recidivism of convicted sex offenders. Uh, second, the effects of these policies on non-registered individuals' criminal behavior. Third, the effects on the geography of where sex offenses occur and the victims who are targeted. And fourth, the effects of failure to register offenses. So these are offenses that are basically created by the existence of these registries. Um, mm -hmm. So whether the, the, whether the fact that a sex offender does not register with authorities actually tells us anything about their public safety risk. Uh, so let's go through these categories one by one. First, what else have we learned about the effects of sex offender registries on the recidivism of convicted sex offenders? Um, I would say, you know, the, the work continues in, in much the same way that, um, the work before ours continues. So there's a couple of, of nice papers that, um, focus on using, uh, criminal, uh, history, uh, records. So Kelly Sosha and some co-authors, um, have, and, and there've been some other papers like this that have, again, just looking at a single state, um, have taken, uh, have been able to get criminal history information so they can study actually, okay, here is somebody who has been convicted of a sex offense and let's look sort of pre and post um, uh, the application of SORN to them and see how that changes the distribution and consequences of, of sex offenses. And one of the big things that we learned from this, which I don't, I don't think, you know, it, it came out, this paper came out roughly contemporaneously with my uh, work with uh, Jonah Rockoff is that, um, is that most sex offenses, as many as 95% of sex offenses are committed by first time offenders. And so if you're spending a lot of time trying to reduce 
um, uh, the number of sex offenses by focusing on, focusing on recidivists, you're, um, you, you know, you're, you're, you're probably focused on the wrong thing. Um, and I, I think it's interesting because in, in lots of spaces, we think of crime being primarily uh, committed by a small group of repeat criminals. And, um, and that doesn't appear to be the case in the context of sex offenses. Now, part of that may be because if um, people are convicted of sex offenses, says they're going to go to prison for um, significantly longer than for a lot of crimes. Um, but uh, if we if we think that criminal records are the way we're going to be able to, to kind of differentiate people who are going to be on something like a registry uh, or not, um, uh, uh, it's it's important to learn that like 95% of the crimes that will be convicted next year, for example, in New York, will be by people who do not have a record. Um, of having committed a sex offense in the past. So that's one um, uh, 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 big uh, lesson I think that's come uh, come out more recently. I'd say uh, <clears throat> there have been a number of studies, some that have kind of replicated cross-state stuff um, like Amanda and, and I did in our papers, um, uh, you, you know, looking at, uh, you know, a set of four or five states. Some have done some work on juveniles and found similar uh, types of stories coming out of them that, the, you know, that recidivism reduction doesn't really um, happen here. Um, there, there has been uh, some additional uh, work on deterrence and whether or not um, the, the, the enactment of these laws have, has reduced overall um, sex offenses. I'd say a lot of that work is either um, uh, it, you know, mostly finds uh, that the, you know, goes with the null hypothesis there, doesn't reject the null. So I'm not sure how much we've learned uh, from that. Um, uh, Jillian Carr, there's a recent paper that uses uh, changes in the length of registration as a way to identify uh, the effects of registration on on crime. And, and she also finds, you know, that there's not much going on here. So I'd say that, you know, even though our paper um, is, you know, eight or eight years old now. And, you know, the, since the first draft came out even older, <laughs> um, we, um, that the story has not changed. Um, I mean, uh, other than this one paper that I mentioned, uh, nobody has, has found any reliable, um, positive consequences on recidivism, uh, for public notification. And, uh, when it comes to private registration, there really hasn't been a way to test it because it's mostly no longer a policy option, um, in the U S I mean, it'd be interesting to try to do it in Canada or, or Australia or one of these places where private registration existed a lot longer, but, um, uh, but that hasn't, um, really been done. Um, uh, so let me move on to the effects on non-registered um, uh, individuals' criminal behavior. There, I think, as I mentioned, uh, there there has been a little more work, and I, I'd say that the jury is still out on that. Um, we found some evidence that uh, Jonah Rockoff and I found some evidence that um, that it, it matters, but I think uh, uh, the uh, uh, the you know the, we just don't have enough I think work um, since then to really know whether that that um, uh, that uh, that conclusion uh, will stand the test of time. Um, and when it comes to geography of where sex offenses occur and the types of victims who are targeted. Um, there has been some more work. Amanda Egan and I worked. We wrote a paper in 2014 where we we actually had um, uh, precise addresses over time of registered offenders in Maryland, and we laid that um, uh, residential information 
over um, a geographic distribution of where sex crimes were happening. And part of this was just a descriptive question. We wanted to know whether or not this assumption that underlies a lot of uh, this work that, listen, if, if you're living near a sex offender, you're at a higher risk of, of, of being victimized. Um, we wanted to know whether that was true. And part of the reason we wanted to know that is because there is there was some pre-existing work on how sex offenders um, commit their crimes. And it turns out that, like many criminals, they don't commit their crimes right where they live. Because committing crimes right where you live um, tends to not be a great strategy in terms of avoiding detection <laughs> and, and so on. And, and, and so, you know, there, there's a, 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 a hypothesis that had come out about this. You know, there's a donut, right? Like people don't travel five hours, but they do travel a half an hour or an hour away to commit their crimes. And so if that were true, you'd have this really weird um, – uh, situation where you would actually prefer to live near sex offenders because at least those sex offenders would not be committing crimes around you, where you live. Uh, and uh, and so we, we wanted to test that. And indeed, what we found in Maryland is that um, victimization risk was actually lower um, the more registered sex offenders lived in a particular census block group. Now, there are potentially a lot of reasons why that might be true. And let me just give you one. You know, sex offenders, as I, I mentioned, if they're if they're uh, on a public registry, are uh, socioeconomically going to be struggling. They may live in more disorganized neighborhoods that have fewer parks, fewer schools, fewer children generally. Um, and so maybe the reason why they don't offend there is there are many fewer victims there. And so actually on a per victim basis, maybe even this lower offense rate is actually a sign that if you're in that category, um, there's higher risk. And so in the paper, we spent a lot of time checking those kinds of theories. And we, we, we really don't find any evidence to suggest that that explains our findings. So we wind up concluding that one of these you know, one of these assumptions that comes with this whole set of laws is that if you live near a sex offender, you are you are at more risk than somebody who doesn't live who lives in a neighborhood without a sex offender. Um, and that turns out not to be true. We then checked to see whether or not that changed with the um, with the uh, implementation of of uh, sex offender notification. And what we find is that if anything. The reported number of sex offense incidents in neighborhoods with a sex offender went up following um, uh, a movement to public registration. So once people found out that there was a sex offender living in their neighborhood, uh, the number of reported crimes went up. Now, this, you know, there are a couple of potential explanations here. One is that, you know, now things that um, uh, maybe, you know, they didn't have any idea who, who, who might the, you know, who the, who the offender was, maybe, you know, now it made sense to actually report a crime. So, you know, reporting could have changed as a result of notification. I mean, even the existence of notification could have caused people to think that the government would be better able to help them if they reported crimes. And maybe that effect was stronger in neighborhoods with sex offenders, who knows, but at least, um, it seems that the reported number of incidents went up in neighborhoods with a sex offender. However, um, and that's, by the way, I should add that that's consistent with um, with uh, public 
registration increasing recidivism, right? Um, on the other hand, um, it doesn't go up so much that those neighborhoods are actually uh, doesn't go up so much that those neighborhoods are actually um, uh, uh, riskier uh, than neighborhoods without sex offenders. So it increases, uh, closes the difference a little bit, but neighborhoods with sex offenders are still relatively safer uh, than um, neighborhoods without sex offenders. Um, and you know that difference, by the way, the increase or decrease in the number of offenses varies a lot by the nature of the offense. So so that's that's another thing. And you, you mentioned types of victims. Uh, there's also variation across types of crimes. And we found that, um, you know, for example, uh, the, the, the reported number of child molestations, you, you know, the, 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 it's not very precise. The estimate seems to have gone down a little bit in, in neighborhoods after notification, uh, neighborhoods with sex offenders. So, so there's a lot of variation. I think uh, there's still a lot of work to be done here to really understand that. And I think that's one of the main messages of this research is that, you know, sex offenders, include a lot of people, a lot of different types of offenders, and there are a lot of different types of victims. And, um, and, and so believing that these laws just have a single, um, kind of average effect may be useful for deciding whether to have it or not, but we really have to get into the heterogeneous effects across different groups and different crimes to know, um, whether or not there are some, uh, types of uh, offenders and types of victims for uh, for whom uh, uh, SORN laws might actually be um, really good or especially bad. Um, and then you also asked me, I guess, about failure to register offenses. And there I'd say, you know, we really don't know that much here. So some people thought that failure to register um, may help us accurately predict um, recidivism, like sex, sex offense recidivism. And the results seem to be pretty mixed on this score. So there is some evidence that um, people who fail to register are more likely to commit crimes generally, but not any more likely to commit sex offenses. So they're, you know, they're just generally less organized and more likely to, to get into trouble generally. And, and one indicator of that is their failure to register. But it's not um, an indication, for example, that somebody is likely to recidivate um, specifically with uh, with respect to sex crime, um, uh, so anyways, I think hopefully that covered most of what you were interested in. Yeah, that was great. So putting all of this together, the results of your own your own work and these other studies that you just talked about, what are the policy implications here when policymakers ask you whether sex offender registration and notification laws are worthwhile? What do you tell them? Um, I tell them that uh, that even though it seems like common sense that finding out that there's a sex offender in your neighborhood, it seems like it's common sense that that would be, at, you know, either helpful or at least not, um, uh, not a, a, a bad thing, um, that that common sense inference is, is actually, um, uh, not only wrong as a matter of logic, but also likely to lead them in the wrong direction. So, uh, you know, these policies are essentially anti-reentry policies. And unless you believe that the information we're providing people makes them so much better able to avoid being victimized, um, that it compensates for the recidivism uh, enhancing risk factors, uh, that these things actually, again, counterintuitively make the world less safe. Now, I mean, there, there, there are people who thought a little bit about this. Why do, you know, given that we, it seems common sense, but now that we've seen the social science on it, why, 
why don't we take it uh, you know take it uh, take the idea of of um, moving away from public registries more seriously and I think there there are psychological explanations for um, uh, for wanting to know things even when we can't affect them or even if we knew that uh, they might they might actually make us less safe um, we still have just a strong desire to not be ignorant about potential risks um, and so there's I think a, a, a really strong uh, demand but you'll you'll hear people saying policymakers they the first and foremost what they need to do is move away from um, those who say listen if SORN if registration and notification can save the life of one child or can save one child from being victimized I don't care about the burden it places on offenders and um, I think what this work shows us is actually, you know, your starting assumption that that at a minimum these laws might save one child is wrong. Actually, they may put many more children at risk, and so um, I think uh, policymakers need to go back to the uh, to the drawing board and spend time thinking about how to how to combine these laws either with reentry-oriented policies that can kind of counteract the negative consequences of publicity, or um, they need to think about restricting uh, public registries uh, to uh, the set of people where we think the empirical trade-off really makes sense, i.e. they are so likely to recidivate regardless of their situation um, that giving people information um, is likely to, to, to be a good trade-off. And so what is the research frontier here? What are the big open questions in this space that you and others will be thinking about in the years ahead? Oh, oh that's a great question. Um, so, I mean, I would love, I would love to know more about, um, uh, about, uh, private registration and how effective it is. Like I say, it's a little bit hard to do research on that now that we're living in a world of just public registration. Um, so I'd say, you know, people who are interested in, um, in this, possibility, you know, would be, would probably do well to look at other countries and, um, and see where, where uh, progress can be made, uh, there. I'd say, you know, there's lots of, of design details here. Uh, for example, um, what, what coverage in terms of types of offenses should, um, we be focused on? Uh, you know, if you really think that, um, sex offenses, of a certain type are committed by acquaintances or neighbors, maybe that's where we ought to be targeting um, registries. Uh, and if there is somebody who has been a, a rapist who has gone out and, and violently raped people who are strangers in other states, that's their MO then this is a person for whom putting them on the registry is just, it's not going to make a difference. It's the, you know, it's not, it's not going to be a solution uh, to the style of offending that this person has adopted. And I think um, the, the as soon as states start moving in that direction and it, it you know, uh, the world will, you know, these things will, will become either, um, well, they'll become better in the sense that they will produce, I think, fewer negative consequences. And the more that we can get into the nitty-gritty gritty on heterogeneous effects of these laws, um, uh, the better. So I'd say that's mostly where the frontier is. My guest today has been J.J. Prescott from the University of Michigan. J.J., thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. 
Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.